Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. There came to Jesus some Sadducees, those who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the wife and raise up the children and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are accounted worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die any more because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed, in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. The Gospel of the Lord. seated. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. A few years back, Uh, Rebecca Solnit wrote an essay titled, Men Explain Things to Me. And it was so wildly popular that it launched the term mansplaining. And I distinctly remember a conversation with my wife wherein I was trying to explain (laughs) that term. It's the only time I've ever done that. At the beginning of her essay, she tells this amazingly awkward and really pretty funny story, funny from a certain point of view, about attending a dinner party with a bunch of rich people in Aspen in the home of a, quote, imposing man who'd made a lot of money. And the host, as she tells it, began to ask her about her work as an author, but it was in a noticeably condescending way. So she begins to tell him about her latest work on a guy named Edward Moybridge, at which point this host interrupts her to ask if she's read the latest account of Moybridge that had just come out. And this guy is going on and on and on in this very self-assured way. And finally, Rebecca's friend who had accompanied her to the party four times says to this man before he realizes what he's doing, That's her book. (laughs) She wrote it. 
In our gospel text this evening, St. Luke records Jesus engaging in several challenges arranged almost back-to-back as group after group in Jerusalem comes and tries to undermine his authority as a teacher. And it it, it feels almost like a scene out of a well-written play, especially in Luke. After this long journey that our hero has taken, he finally arrives at the place where the final contest will happen. And he's asked these trick questions left and right. And the one that you just heard read, this particular trick question before us is brought by the Sadducees, which is a group we don't hear too much about in the gospel accounts. The Sadducees were sort of like wealthy, aristocratic fundamentalists. They denied the oral tradition as having any authority alongside the books of Moses, which is the first five books of Scripture, which pitted them against the Pharisees, because the Pharisees held that the oral tradition that went along with Moses' books was authoritative for Jewish life. But along with the Sadducees' denial of the oral tradition came a denial of angels and the afterlife. So notice the contours of their question, and you'll start to see what they're really up to. Their question revolves around the practice of what's called Leverite marriage. In ancient times, wealth and power were handed down generationally to male heirs, often in the form of land. And as families would grow, they would amass more wealth and more land, and it would get passed from eldest son to eldest son. And the other sons would each get a smaller portion. So if the eldest son died without a male heir, it would create quite the problem. The solution was to have the next eldest son marry his deceased brother's widow and try to produce an heir. But, and this is key, it would be legally, for inheritance purposes, the dead brother's son, not his son. It was a way of passing on the family line rather than having it die out, which is another way of saying it was a way to live beyond the grave. So the Sadducees are saying, okay, let's say a guy gets married and dies, and then the next brother in line marries the widow just like Moses wrote for us, and he dies, and so on and so on through seven brothers. And essentially what they're saying is, resurrection makes no sense in the teaching of Moses. Do you see the trap? Jesus can either say he is in agreement with Moses and Scripture, which would be to agree that the resurrection is nonsense in the minds of the Sadducees, or he can say that Moses and Scripture don't matter and resurrection is real. Of course, what they don't realize is is that they are the ones who have walked into a trap. The Sadducees here are like that smug host trying to explain a book he hadn't really read to the woman who wrote it. That's what's happening in this account, right? Jesus is the Word of God. And these Sadducees are trying to explain that very thing to him. This little story because it is all about authority, contains a very, very important set of truths. And the first truth is this. People have been trying to pit Jesus against Scripture from the beginning, and they are still trying. The Sadducees were hoping to have clearance to reject Jesus by getting him to reject the authority of Scripture. 
Today, I think it's more the opposite. There are an increasing number of Christians and churches that are hoping to gain clearance to reject Scripture by getting Jesus to reject it. They want to hear him say to the Sadducees, yeah, man, Moses was really off his rocker on that one. He missed it. But that's not what he says. Instead, he shows them, as he shows every single time when someone tries to pit him against Scripture, that they don't actually know the Scriptures that they claim to be their final authority. And if they'd really studied Moses, they would know that Moses teaches that the dead are raised when he referred to the Lord as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as we looked at last week at the Feast of All Souls. These are men who had been dead for years. And yet God calls himself the God of the living, not the dead. Truth number one, don't try to pit Jesus against Scripture. Don't try to explain away parts of the book to the guy that wrote it. He is the true and definitive word of God. And when we see him elevate the authority of Scripture, when he says things like, I have not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it, we should sit up and realize that all Scripture has authority because Christ has authority. When he wants to make a point, he doesn't skirt around Scripture. He uses Scripture to make his point. Secondly, and relatedly, beware people who like to use Scripture in the same way as the Sadducees, picking out a few verses here and there, while ignoring the rest. This is what one of the church fathers referred to as, as making a mosaic with the scripture. You can make a mosaic to look like the king or you can make a mosaic to look like the fox using the same tiles, right? You have to be thinking along with the spirit. You can't just pull things out of context. To use scripture in this way, in a proof texting way, is what's called the drunkard's use of a lamppost. You guys know about this? Drunkards use a lamppost for support, not illumination, right? The scriptures are not there to reinforce our ideas and ideals that we happen to have in our brain. The scriptures are there to illumine us, to bring light to the chaos of our minds and our hearts, and to illuminate the pathway of life that we might walk in it. Truth number two, don't use Scripture to prop up your pet theologies. Instead, let Scripture be a light to your path and a lamp to your feet. Study it, meditate on it, digest it, and most importantly, let it study you. And by the way, I believe that this can only really be done in the context of the church. So many of us are used to just having me and my Bible time, and that's when we get into all sorts of Sadduceical trouble, because we don't necessarily know how to read the book correctly. We need to have the guidance of the Spirit in the mind of the church teaching us how to interpret the Scriptures and how to allow the Scriptures to shape our lives. The way that Jesus handles Scripture in this story reveals to us why it is so important that we be both apostolic people and eschatological people. Huh? 
Do you know how the New Testament scriptures were canonized? The New Testament church, by way of the bishops, got together. And through much prayer and discussion and study, they came to the conclusion that the Spirit of God was standing these certain books and letters apart from others. And now, as you look back, do you know the most striking thing between the books that were canonized and those that were rejected, those that were said to not be part of the canon? The books that have become our New Testament canon are soaked to the core with Hebrew Scripture. And they rejected, the rejected books appear sort of out of nowhere. They don't really seem to fit in the line of God's people thinking together with the mind of the Spirit about God. And so some of these other books may have good things to say, but they are not part of this other authoritative thing. The bishops of the church saw themselves in the line of the apostles, and they simply couldn't just do whatever seemed permissible to them because they were men under authority. They were to submit to the authority of what had been handed down to them, had been handed and delivered over to the church from the beginning. Throughout the ages and down to this very day, there are those that will say, well, I realize that the church has believed this X, Y, or Z, or that the scriptures have said X, Y, or Z, but now the Spirit is revealing something new. Our response should always be, maybe, and then we should check it against the scripture and the consensus of the church. Even in the Reformation, the early reformers were simply responding to medieval malformed Christianity by going back to the church fathers to see what is truly Catholic, believed always, everywhere, and by all. That's what they wanted to figure out. To be apostolic is to recognize that, generally speaking, things don't just appear without lineage. We believe that God has worked in saints past through their courage in the face of persecution to preserve the message of the gospel and the life of the church down to this very day. And that means that we don't get to just decide on things apart from that heritage, apart from the apostolicity of those who have gone before. We don't have that freedom because it's not real freedom. The church is a thing that we enter we have to be apostolic people. We have to be people who are in line, people under authority who submit to God's own body, Christ's body, the church. I think this encounter between Christ and the Sadducees also shows us why we must be eschatological people. Because Jesus reads Scripture eschatologically. He tells the Sadducees that there are people who are marked primarily by this age and there are people who are marked primarily by the age to come. The people of the age to come are said to be worthy to attain it. They are described as being like angels and are called sons of God and sons of resurrection. And of course we know that sons here includes daughters and elevates daughters past what their cultural position would have been at the time. Jesus is saying that men and women, all people that are worthy to attain the age to come, will be sharing in this inheritance together as full heirs. 
This is a continuation of what we observed in the Feast of All Souls as we considered the lives of those who have gone on before us, those who were found worthy, and we recognize that to be worthy to attain to the age to come is to be found in Christ. That's what that means. If you want to be worthy of the age to come, you must be found in Christ, plain and simple. It is to be dressed in his righteousness, to have been washed in his blood. It is through faith and baptism, the sealing of the Holy Spirit, to put on as a cloak Christ's death and resurrection. But don't don't rush past that. It is to put on Christ's death. This is how we are made worthy to attain the resurrection of the dead, Paul himself says. It is a work of the Spirit, but it's one that requires submission to Christ and death to self. It is not a work that we can accomplish on our own, and yet all of our being must be engaged to work with the Spirit. To be in Christ, sharing in communion with his saints, is to be sharing in his sufferings. And the question we must ask ourselves is, are we? Are we sharing in his sufferings? Do we spend our time in service or selfishness? Is our heart roused more by the cheers of the stadium and the ball game or the singing of God's people? Have you taught yourself to long more for a new brunch spot or a new cocktail bar than you do for the marriage supper of the Lamb? Following Jesus is not easy. And if you allow your mind and heart to set their hopes on things that are all here and now, it may eventually seem too hard to keep following him. Not worth it. But when we begin to realize what's on offer, when we understand that the true God is the God of the living and that resurrection life is to be had, that there is a never-ending wedding feast in the presence of the single most worthy being in existence, Christ the Lamb, that this is the invitation. When that eschatological edge becomes the frame of your life, the story that you tell about yourself, you can begin to fill that frame with the good news that even when you were living in a broken off, dead end rebellion against God, his love for you was so strong that Christ, the lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world, came and suffered and died on your behalf. And that is when it will become possible through the power of the Spirit to follow him into suffering and death, into whatever it is that he calls you to do in his name. But if you're going to follow him in that, you have to do what Rowan Williams refers to as the prosaic process of unselfing. You have to cease being the king or queen of your own life. And there's one tiny little thing that you can do tomorrow morning 
get up 20 minutes earlier, crack open your book of common prayer, find the lectionary, do whatever you need to. Get a Bible, sit with Christ, and hear his word, and allow your day to begin with him speaking to you, not your email inbox, not your social media feeds, not your own ideas of what you need to accomplish that day. Allow your Lord and King to tell you what you will be doing with him that day. He will show up. He's inviting you into his own life. Let us read Scripture as Christ intended us to read it, as people who are in line with the apostles and people who are awaiting for the end of the age when Christ will come and be all in all. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.